Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. So glad to be a part of this growing ecosystem of principled voices engaging in conversations that matter. And we won't mind having some fun today either. So I am your host and I'm holding down the fort solo today. I hope you can bear with me. So I thought I'd start by doing something a little different. I wanted to read something one of our listeners posted. This is from Rapuano, who was so kind to share his thoughts on Apple podcast. He said, so interesting and well thought out. Love the deep conversations about topics that are not discussed in our environment these days, but are so necessary to begin to be able to understand and respect each other and deferring viewpoints. I really appreciate that, Rapuano. And if you wouldn't mind rating, uh, rating our, our program here and leaving your thoughts on whichever platform you're on, that would be really great. It helps others find us uh, as well. And mention us to a friend. It's really the best way our community of engaged citizens can grow here and we can keep talking politics and religion without killing each other. And without further ado, our guest today is actually my vicar. <laughs> Have you ever been referred to that way, by the way? I just- I, I think that may be the first time. I've been okay. referred to as a rector. Some people even thought I was a priest, but uh, <laughs> vicar I'll take. Okay. Yeah, I guess he's more typically referred to as our pastor and he also happens to be my pal. Matthew Colwell is pastor of Knox Presbyterian Church in Pasadena, California, and also the co-author of a book we'll be talking about at length today. The book is titled, Our God is Undocumented, Biblical Faith and Immigrant Justice. That sounds scandalous. <laughs> uh, Matt earned his master's degree in divinity from Fuller, his doctorate from San Francisco Theological Seminary, and is also the author of Sabbath economics, household practices. But I think we need to start by asking how you went from being a man of the car to a man of the cloth, a master mechanic to master of divinity. So fill us in, Matt. You bet. Well, uh, actually, it's interesting because it certainly involves my co-author, Ched Myers, of this, of Our God is Undocumented. But in my final year of seminary, I ended up taking a class with Ched entitled uh, The Mark's Gospel and a First World Theology of Justice and Peace, was really affected by it and ended up doing a directed study with him afterwards. And near the end of my time, as I was in conversation with churches, I'd been through the Presbyterian ordination process, preparing to be a pastor. He said, uh, Matt, I think the worst thing you can do after seminary is go straight into church ministry. And I was like, Shed, what are you talking about? This is I've been preparing for this for years, studied for this. And he said, let me just just hear me out here. I think that you should learn a trade instead after seminary. And I said, what a trade? And he says, just hear me out. Three reasons to consider learning a trade. One, you'll get a great sense of the nine to five work life that so many people in the congregations you serve will experience. 
secondly, you'll uh, be able to grow in character. And he argued that a great crisis in the church today was a crisis in character, particularly among leaderships. And he thought leadership and he thought a good learning a trade would help in growing character. And thirdly, he said, uh, let's say the church kicks you out for let's just say preaching the gospel. You got a <laughs> fallback plan. Yeah. So yeah. that led me at first, I thought he was crazy, but then I talked to other people who had been friends and mentors and they said, you know, it, that it'd be pretty interesting. My wife had several years still to go in her seminary studies when I graduated. So rather than take a kind of an interim church position, I thought, Hey, I'll go try and learn a trade. Always been interested in cars. And so I took, uh, started with taking a class at a local community college, ended up getting a part of, to be a part of a, uh, program to then head to a Toyota dealership and work as a ASE master auto mechanic, which I did for several years and loved working with my hands. But I will say the time there certainly, even there, felt really led to uh, longer term to pastoral ministry, to being a part of the conversation with people about their lives and their faith. Uh, some of that I was able to do under the hood next to coworkers, but loved <laughs> the idea of being a part of the church, but hopefully one that has solidarity with working people, with labor movement, with uh, sort of the issues that um, working people face. So that was uh, some of what occurred, at least the mechanic to uh, ministry move. You just reminded me, one of the folks that you profile in the book is John Fife. And uh, at one point you say, having worked his way through college and seminary as a steel mill worker and a welder, John offered to dive into odd jobs at parishioners' homes. In so doing, he got to know their stories and to better understand the local community. Really, yeah. you know, there's so many, um, there's so many benefits uh, to not simply being academic uh, and theoretical in, in your work in the ministry. Uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's terrific. So it's yeah. interesting. The, the different paths that 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 we take. Yeah. And still to this day, there have been times where like right after a church service, somebody's battery will be dead or some car issue will occur. And I'm not above going in there and offering, even if it's like, nope, don't know, <laughs> or it's hard to say, but happy to <laughs> happy to look at it if I if I have any insight on it. That's not like me. You know, uh, Lisa, when, early on when we met, uh, her car, we had, we both had these old cars. Hers was a rabbit, if I remember correctly, with, you know, a hole in the floor and the, the floorboard. And, you know, at one point it broke down and she said, can, can you come and look at it? I said, I can come and look at it. <laughs> but uh, as you know, I have uh, the older of my two boys, our middle one, our middle child. He's uh, really great with his hands and really getting yeah. to know his way around cars. So I gave him a great fatherly instruction. If anybody asks him a question like that, the proper answer is something along the lines of the way evil Knievel would answer a question like that is, don't you know who the hell I am? <laughs> <laughs> He's getting really good at that stuff. Good for him. <laughs> so yeah. so I, I see you went to Williams College in Massachusetts, but didn't you grow up here in California? I did. Yeah, I grew up down in the San Diego area. Okay. So what prompted that move to go all the way out to cold Massachusetts for college. Yeah. So I was really, I don't know whether it's growing up in uh, one part of the country and wanting to see another part of the country or whether there was kind of this mystique uh, and interest in kind of uh, the Northeast and uh, traditional colleges out there. But um, certainly there was a draw to, for me, to get to 
uh, attend a college in another part of the country. And when I did a visit of a variety of colleges, I got a chance to visit Williams and really, really loved it. A small school a campus in the Berkshire Mountains. I think I visited on the fall when just the leaves are beautiful. It's one of the oldest colleges in the United States, goes back to 1793, had a great singing group, a number of, of things to recommend it. So, and not to mention all that, my dad went there. So that oh, was okay. A, originally that was a deterrent. I thought, oh, I'm gonna go to like the Williams big rival Amherst or I'm gonna go to another college, but uh, in touring them, I, I really fell in love with Williams. And it, it looks like you studied English. So you, you weren't necessarily thinking about ministry right out of the gate, were you? No, I was. I actually, my first, uh, I remember well uh, with going out with my high school youth director. So the equivalent of like Annalise, who's worked at our church in youth ministry, that I went out with the equivalent of our Annalise, a fellow named Scott. And he knew at that point I was interested in the ministry. He was really struggling at that time with some of the uh, challenges of church ministry. So soon after we met, he ended up going into writing for a bit, now is back and just having a thriving ministry. But at that time, he was certainly uh, having very honest with some of the challenges of church work. But even through that, I remember meeting with him, watching a movie, going out to pizza and feeling like, yeah, you know, this, this really could be an exciting calling and what a treat to get to I uh, have a profession where I get to help others in the journey of Christian discipleship, uh, study scripture, preach it, um, be a part of people's lives and their highs and lows uh, in the beginnings of life from baptism all the way to the funeral. That always sounded pretty exciting to me. So I did think about that. But the senior minister at the church growing up, when he heard I was interested in potentially going to seminary, said, Matt, you'll get plenty of religion, plenty of that in seminary. So enjoy. And there's something wonderful about being able to understand stories. Mm. So he said, Matt, if I could recommend a major, it would be English. And I took religion classes, took philosophy classes, but uh, just loved English. And I'm really grateful that was my major. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, I do have to say at at our services at Knox, uh, when we first started, we we first started attending um, holidays, Easter, because our friends the the Givens go there, and I noticed that uh, every service there seemed to be a piece of art or a quote from a great author, you know, and not like the most obvious ones, you know, okay, C.S. Lewis, all right, whatever, <laughs> not, not to be uh, dismissive of C.S. Lewis, but like every Christian, American Christian nowadays knows about C.S. Lewis, but give me a little bit of you know, Dorothy Sayers and, yeah. you know, you had me at hello. So I oh, love it. And throw in some Samuel Beckett at that, man, oh, you know, and let's yeah. think about him or, and I, and I love, you were a part of one of our, uh, where we included a section of the Merchant of Venice in right. the worship service. And there's such great stuff in literature and Shakespeare and, you know, and modern writers that even if they don't initially come from a faith perspective, pose crucial questions for people of faith and real issues that uh, that faith can speak to. Yeah. Yeah. We've read in our uh, reading group, we've read some Wendell Berry, who's one of my favorites. Oh. I think I think you're the one who introduced me to uh, Marilyn Robinson. Is that? Yes. Yeah. yeah Gilead and uh, her latest Jack is not the greatest, but uh, it's okay. still worth okay. reading. I'm glad to have read it. But Gilead is one of my five top novels, no question. Yeah, good stuff. Favorite novels, I should say. 
So you, so you were thinking about, uh, fr from an early age, you were thinking about not necessarily Fuller per se, but you were already planning doing an undergrad study and then on to seminary and, and all that. Yes, absolutely. So really going back in some ways to middle school, I also had a really powerful experience of uh, in, in middle school of really sensing God's work in my life, of really uh, kind of uh, finding myself attracted to and really intrigued by this teacher, friend, uh, mentor, and savior in, in Jesus Christ. So that was a big pull uh, for me from back in middle school to kind of getting more engaged in my faith. So from going back uh, that far, it was certainly uh, in the realm of possible. And I thought about Princeton Seminary because it was out east as well, near Williams. But by the end of four years at Williams College, the cold winters just had <laughs> sent me screaming back to California. And yet you spent several years in Connecticut, didn't oh, you? Oh, man. So here's the thing. This is just classic. So I finally get back to California for seminary and love it. You know, yeah. Pasadena is beautiful. Southern California. Fuller was great. And, and then Jill, my wife, comes out, joins me at Fuller, and then she decides to pursue a PhD in theology. And this is, you know, this is wonderful for a person who's getting, preparing to be a pastor myself, this wonderful bond between us. But then she applies to PhD programs and where does she get accepted and want to go but Yale. Oh. So, and, and Miroslav Volf, who was a mentor for both of us, ended up being her thesis advisor, was going to Yale. So I was, I told her before this, I'll go with you anywhere, but the Northeast don't take. <laughs> the Northeast. And of course, that's where she wants to, I was like, God, is this really your will? And it's a sense of humor. It really does. God has a profound sense of humor and you never say never to, to God and to the call process. I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I'm convinced God is Jewish. That's a perfectly Jewish sense of humor. <laughs> Amen. I, I can't. If you're not suffering, you're not trying. <laughs> so uh, fast forward a little bit to, I hope I'm saying this right, Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus Cooperative yeah. Ministries. So yeah. you had met Ch Chad in under, uh, no, at Fuller, you said, right? That's correct. Yep. And is that is that how you got the gig at Bartimaeus? Yeah, so he had been uh, sort of an adjunct professor. I'd then done a directed study with him and then kept in touch. He was a part of several uh, training sessions and retreats on Sabbath economics. He started World and World, Word and World, which was an alternative seminary focusing on um, sort of the movement history and church as movement, movement for immigrant rights, for civil rights, for uh, women's rights, for gender equality, that sort of thing. And this moving seminary would take place in different parts of the country. I was a part of, uh, of those and kept in touch with him. And then when he knew after about, uh, when I was serving at a church out in Connecticut, when I got to about my fifth, sixth year, he knew that I was uh, feeling ready to be uh, to to do something different, and was particularly interested in what I might call prophetic ministry. That is, sort of some uh, Christian work that was about social change and really had a strong social justice emphasis. And so he said, "Hey, I'm I've got this outfit called Bartimaeus, which is uh, sort of a social justice nonprofit." faith-based, uh, would you be willing to come out and work for this organization? I said, you bet. And so that's what I, I left the church. I was serving in Greenwich, Connecticut after close to six years to go out and work with him. Yeah. Yeah. And it brought you back to SoCal 
That's exactly right, which was no accident either. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm curious. I didn't quite put two and two together, but this is uh, early 2000s, 2005 or so that, that mm -hmm. you went to Bartimaeus. Now, yeah. um, I, was, I had just become a Christian around uh, maybe late 2000, uh, oh. but the culture, the more visible parts of Christianity, uh, especially whether as a new Christian or for those who weren't Christians, was the sort of thing like, um, what was his name? Carl Rove putting gay marriage laws on the wow. books in any number of states where it might've been close, where he could have gotten Bush over the edge because the sentiment you know, was so um, averse to uh, gay rights at that time. Uh, it's certainly in the church. I'm not asking, I didn't plan to ask this question, but I'm just putting two and two together. So your, some of your theological convictions seem to have already been at odds with the more visible side of American Christianity at that point. Is that fair to say? Sure. Yeah. No. And that goes, that goes back even further back to a, a great uh, Marxist teacher I had in high school, um, certainly back to um, the 1992 uprising in Los Angeles and the impact that had on me. Um, and then, and then a longstanding interest in sort of movements of social change that emerged uh, within uh, the church, or at least where the church was a driving force for them, but that they impacted the broader uh, nation and world, civil rights being one of the prominent ones. Yeah. You know, it's, it's something that started occurring to me, because uh, I was a pretty serious Bible reader. I mean, I grew up reading the Torah. Um, you know, going to Hebrew school, Hebrew high school, and then when I became a Christian, I, you know, continued reading, you know, New Testament pretty seriously. And one of the things that was hard for me to reckon with was how a lot of my friends at church, their default social and political position seemed to be at odds with what I was reading in yeah. scripture. Uh, yep. And even, I mean, <laughs> I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but even today I saw our representative here in California, 25, he posted, we are seeing a 21 year high in the number of illegal immigrants. Uh, oh. That was his, his big tweet today. Oh. Um, the crisis, this is a crisis, take action. A lack of enforcement is impacting uh, all 50 states. And yeah. um, I, <laughs> I was sort of naughty. I tweeted back at him, uh, at Mike, I, I'm, I don't know if he even pays any attention when I do this, but uh, it's a quote from from uh, one of Ched's essays. Listen, I stand at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and we will share communion. So, like I said, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but it's a it's amazing. Um, anyway, I'm not going to have you account just yet. I will have you account for all of American Christianity uh, at a later point in this interview. Yes. <laughs> um, before we, though, uh, we get into the, the book, did you go through, there's an exercise that Chad describes in Appendix 2 of the book uh, called Recovering Our Cultural History. Have you ever mm. gone through any of those exercises where your family is from? Uh, where did they settle in the U.S.? Did you ever do that? Yeah, no, I did. And one of the things that was very powerful on the, and, and was one of many factors that impacted my interest in immigration was learning that uh, Edward Caldwell on my dad's side, uh, before the family immigrated from Canada down to the US had immigrated to Canada uh, from Ireland. 
And this happened mid 19th century. So this happened roughly, you know, and this is going back to ancestry.com sort of finding uh, some of what the story of ancestry says. And there's a lot that I don't know, but it appears that during the great potato famine uh, that Edward Caldwell and, uh, and family went by boat to settle in Canada because there was certain financial incentives for uh, moving to Canada at that time. But the Great Potato Famine was a, this huge migration that on one hand was impacted by uh, oppressive policies by uh, Britain towards uh, Ireland and the ejections where people were ejected from their homes when they weren't able to pay. But then also this tragedy of a potato uh, crop uh, and huge masses of potato crop going, uh, going rotten and that um, just decimating the population. Uh, you know, millions of people ended up uh, dying uh, or uh, having to leave for, the, for their lives. And it really brought some, a sense of solidarity to people in the global south today and say in Central America who really have the choice. We either leave where we are starving in order to have hope for a better life, or we stay here and we starve under uh, economic and political conditions that are simply not sustainable. My own fam that that story is a part of my own family history. Interesting. I was going to ask you about some examples in a second, but um, before before I do, uh, were there any cultural traditions from your family's roots that that you've retained? Oh, that's a good. A good question. I'm trying to think of whether there uh, there are no cultural traditions in particular that come to my mind, uh, like the great cedar dinner or something. Oh man! <laughs> yeah, you and Lucy and Jill. Yeah. Oh, we love that. Jo joined in on the fun. Ronnie at his best. <laughs> oh man. The Ronnie that and Phyllis. We we could record that and just you know put that up for uh, everyone's entertainment. <laughs> We do. So for those who don't know, we do uh, a Seder every year. And it's one of my fondest memories growing up. It's a pretty traditional Seder, uh, which is uh, in Hebrew, I think it means order. So it's an ordered meal where we retell the story of Passover. And it's told in such a way that, uh, you know, kids, uh, kids can enjoy it. And we eat and we tell the typical story. My, my brother says it a lot better than I do. We, uh, we came into the land we suffered and they enslaved us. Then we escaped. Now let's eat. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so uh, Matt and his family have participated in that a, a few years. So and have loved it. Yeah. So I, I was also curious, your American identity, um, if some of the convictions you formed as an adult are at odds with some of some in your family in terms of how they think of the family's American identity. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, certainly I give my parents a great deal of respect for being con kind of on this journey of uh, both appreciating uh, America, but also of critiquing uh, ways that our country both uh, currently as well as historically has um, been uh, a part of tremendous injustice, the oppressive of oppression of people and continues to uh, be a part of uh, imperial and 
um, uh, sort of systems of death dealing. So it's, it's uh, I really give them a lot of respect for being a part of this conversation and of my own shaping as to what, what does it mean to be, a, to on one hand, own the, the rich history of America and also be a part of the critique of, of a country that has uh, you know, for had legalized slavery for so long, continues to uh, have uh, you know to have systemic racism and other kinds of of issues that need addressing to the climate crisis. Um, so, uh, but there certainly there have been times in my life where when I've been going through more of a phase of saying, oh wait, you know, look at look at these issues, particularly around say in looking. And immigration and looking how U.S. trade policy has impacted uh, migration from, say, individuals in Central America North, or in particular, uh, how U.S. Uh, policy towards Guatemala and El Salvador and supporting dictators there impacted uh, migration out of those countries. That uh, there was a time where, in kind of uh, working through that, there were um, some more challenging discussions with my with my folks, but they've, you know, God bless them. They've been a part of, of certainly shaping me. And, uh, and I think we're, we continue to engage in those in a way that's, um, yeah, that's mutually respectful and probably true to the spirit of this podcast, how to talk about politics or religion without killing each other. We've been <laughs> able to do that. And Good. that's largely Good. thanks to them. Cause you know, I went through this whole phase of, I know everything and um, then discovering, oh man, I don't <laughs> I have a whole lot to learn. Even <laughs> not, only from, not only from marginalized communities and people who have known uh, deep and deep oppression, but uh, even from my own family. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it seems that there are those who are able to embrace the whole story, warts and mm, all. Yeah. Um, and even individual characters aren't either or characters. They're not completely villains or completely heroes. You know, every individual who's part of the story is a complex individual, and thus the story is is complex. So, um, so I like love Ted Lasso. Have you watched that on TV? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. great. Everyone, yeah. you know, we're we're all alloys, right? This mix of there's good in us, there's evil, and you know, as a pastor, I'm going to be quick to proclaim God's at work in it, you know, in that process of sanctification, trying to uh, work at um, the evil in us and transform us by the power of Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely one of my favorite shows on TV right now. He's like, yeah, a, love it. Yeah. Encouragement. Um, so, yeah. so our God is undocumented. At the beginning of the book, Chad poses some really challenging questions uh, one extended quotation, will we whose ancestors respected no boundaries seek to erect impermeable borders? Will the descendants of Ellis Island bar the quote unquote golden door, even as our economic and military policies around the globe continue to create tempest tossed populations? Mm. Or, and he's quoting obviously from the Lazarus poem uh, under the Statue of Liberty, or will we listen uh, to the voice of Christ speaking through the immigrant poor. This is the quote that I uh, took from him, the piece of scripture. Listen, I stand at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and we will share communion. That's from Revelation 3.20. So I have two questions about that. 
Um, you started to say before, but I'd like you to give us some examples of economic and military policies that create uh, tempest-tossed populations. Yeah, so I would say the uh, one example would be military aid uh, provided to countries, uh, particularly during the 1980s, uh, like Guatemala and El Salvador, when um, those uh, military regimes were doing great violence to populations that would then uh, lead to migration from those countries. Another example, I got to the chance to visit uh, Colombia in the uh, early 2000s as part of a trip with a Catholic worker community to show uh, solidarity and be part of an international accompaniment uh, ministry to communities of displaced uh, Afro-Colombians uh, who, were, who were basically displaced from their land by military and paramilitary uh, forces and, and then just kind of get to know what they were doing. And you, you, you saw, oh, okay, it's these aid packages that are then providing support for the military and in Colombia, at least the paramilitary as well. That, and you could then get to know personally some people who were uh, really harmed and in some cases even killed. In Colombia, I did a memorial service for a young man who had been killed by the paramilitary shortly before I arrived uh, there. And particularly in the case of Guatemala and El Salvador in the uh, 1980s, policies of supporting those regimes were uh, were a real issue and leading to migration. And then what people like John Fife and others profiled in the book learned is when they, when those who were undocumented and crossed the border were sent back, they were sent back mm. uh, at times to their death um, because of the political and military situation uh, that was, that was going on. there. Yeah. I mean, this is a big can of worms, but I, I it makes me wonder what our policy in Iraq and Afghanistan you know, what the long-term implications are, uh, you know, and leaving and what we're leaving behind. Uh, it, the policies and, and what our country does around the world has real-world implications. Oh, yeah. It impacts lives. That's right. And often that's a piece that we don't see as much in the, in the narrative where we take the, take the issue of people at the border, you know, where we tend to look at, oh, there are people in the border trying to cross north. And we don't ask the crucial questions, why and what has led to uh, people being in such desperate situations that they're trying to head north. And economic policy would be would certainly be NAFTA, that the North American Free Trade Agreement had a huge impact on the price, say, of corn in Mexico. And when the price of corn plummeted in Mexico, a host of subsistent farmers in that country were suddenly destitute. And so that led to a host of them heading to the border regions where a number of factories, which were also producing uh, producing goods that were then uh, sent to the U.S. They'd work there for a time, but even there it was very uh, difficult to make a living. Um, you'd earn uh, because of the wages that were earned. So people were really in a situation where to survive, to feed their families, they had to push north, where if there had not been uh, a trade policies to begin with that had such a negative impact on subsistent farmers in Mexico, there wouldn't be that migration uh, north. And while, while U.S. economic policy wasn't the only factor, it was a big one. 
Yeah. And, and that's where, you know, you want to say, okay, what we often talk about the push and pull of immigration. There are push factors and there are pulls. Certainly a pull is well-paying jobs in the United States, particularly in agriculture that say uh, U.S. citizens might not, well, may not want to take, but then also the push factors like uh, the, the collapsed price of corn in Mexico. Yeah. Well, I'd like you to, I don't know if you're, you'd be able to do this, but I'd be interested in the exercise. Uh, I mentioned Mike Garcia, our representative here. And one of the reasons it's relevant is because um, when he was running for the full term here, uh, he was supported by at least 40 pastors here in this valley, uh, Christian pastors here in this valley. And throughout the book, it, both you and Chad take great pains. Uh, it's 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 very deeply rooted in scripture. Um, but, you know, as we were mentioning before, many non-Christians, uh, Christ, friends of mine, think of those of us in the church, certainly those in the American evangelical church, phrases like build that wall seem to be more closely associated. Uh, is there a biblical argument to be made for a more closed door uh anti-immigrant or, or more diplomatically um, secured border position? Yeah, I mean, certainly you could, the, a classic argument is made quoting Romans 13, where, you know, obey the laws of the land, obey the, uh, the governing authorities, that this sense of observing the, the laws and rules of a particular nation. So that's, that's a scripture reference that's often brought up to support uh, say policies that um, that restrict uh, immigration, but even there, you know, as a people of faith or as Christians, you would want to ask, hey, is this law just? Is this reflective of our values as Christians, which we we argue is love of God and love of neighbor? And you know, Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan, when he was asked, hey, who's your neighbor? It's that neighbor lying on the other side of the road who's uh, who's sick or who's uh, who's been beaten and who is uh, in need, and so um, so that you would you would want to say even then wait do does do our laws reflect love of neighbor and concern for the marginalized? Yeah, I, I good friends of mine, guys that I respect, uh, have a much more um, staunch stance uh, on on having secured borders. And um, I don't know, I, you know, reading from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it just seems to scream out <laughs> uh, for another type of posture. So, Well, yeah, and certainly reading the prophets. But I think sometimes those postures have more to do with ideological uh, commitments and not necessarily biblical commitment. Yeah, I think that's the mistake, really. And it's been brought up in many conversations here that oftentimes we start with our political or social preferences and mm -hmm. work really hard to back scripture into it. Yep. Amen. But uh, oftentimes the, the, I don't really know, you know, uh, as much of the Bible as you do, I can't quote chapter and verse, but oftentimes if I simply remember, Hey, let's keep reading, let's see what else it says. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, often come yeah. across something, you know, like I I've told that's the story about Leviticus 19 once or twice on, on this program where, 
the pastor referred to a verse or half a verse at the top of Leviticus 19. And let's just keep reading because at the bottom of Leviticus 19, it takes a very different stance on uh, <laughs> how to treat yeah. those the strangers among us, you know? Yes. Let's keep reading. I like that. Let's keep reading. Good posture. So Chad makes another interesting point in one of his first essays referring to Jesus's command in Mark 6 to the disciples take nothing for their, uh, he's referring to their missionary journey, except a staff. And he reflects how different the history of Christianity would have been had that simple stipulation been heeded. <laughs> uh, so I'm not sure if you're a history or a church history buff, but at what point did this command get turned on its head? When did missionary Christians go from itinerance dependent on the hospitality of our um, unmet friends that we'll call them in, in foreign lands to um, conquistadors and, and crusaders? Oh, that is a great, that's a great question. And uh, there have been people who've done some really good work on that history and could probably answer that question far better than, than I could, but certainly uh, looking at the missionary movement in California and uh, which have done recently in the treatment of uh, native peoples along the coast, certainly you would see examples rather than that posture of vulnerability of depending upon the hospitality of those you visit, there was very much uh, all too often examples of exploitation and of the sense that no, we are gonna um, sort of protect ourselves and pull you into the place of, of serving our, our interests. Yeah. So let me let me follow that up. Uh, and this maybe is where I'll have you account for all of American Christians. <laughs> um, what kinds of positions or what kind of posture do you see among our brothers and sisters in the American church today that is more like the imperialists or the crusaders and not so much like the disciples of Jesus who would take nothing for their journey except a staff? Mm. I guess I guess I'm asking you to confess our you know, corporate sin here. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what you're talking, I mean, even the reference before to illegal immigrants, a doubly dehumanizing term to, to genuinely see um, those migrating north as the, as the other of somehow not having a shared humanity with us, seems like a, uh, a posture that uh, sadly, I do see people in the American church taking, uh, referring to them rather than uh, understanding this great solidarity we have with the whole human community as people created with them in the image of God and people for whom, uh, as Christians, we believe God came into the world through Christ to save out of a deep love for the world, that is for the whole of humanity, so that I think that division is a big one. I think uh, this, you know, I, I would say uh, on the on the climate justice front, this interest in somehow uh, standing alone or resistance to from the Paris uh, accords to other uh, global efforts to work together to address and combat climate change. I think that's uh, a real mistake. That is, it's a mistake to uh, to try to simply protect uh, either American interests or way of life and not to be engaged in this global uh, common struggle to, uh, to try to uh, be better stewards of, of creation and do uh, less destruction 
to this incredible gift that is uh, that we know we as human beings have done tremendous harm to and are doing tremendous harm to and are, are uh, risking yet further destruction related uh, on it. So uh, the, the resistance to those sort of international efforts, I think, is also a mistake. I think when I, when I hear uh, in scripture, the sense of Jerusalem being a beacon or a light to the nations, this image of all the nations of the world gathering and of God somehow being at work in the coming together of nations for common purposes that uh, reflect the justice, the peace, the uh, compassion, the desire for uh, wholeness and Sabbath and rest for the earth and for people. I, I see that as a vision of ultimately what the global community is called to. And so what I would love to see more of is, is the United States being, being a leader, not only in, in addressing the ecological crisis, but then in also being uh, humbly, but deliberately a part with other nations in working collectively to tackle something that impacts all of us. Yeah. 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 It's, it's funny now that I, now that I remember it, there are parts in the book where um, there's a connection between Babel and Acts 2, uh, mm, where yeah. it's the dispersing of languages and then the coming together of languages. And you're, you're kind of uh, making a reference to that to that now. It's, yeah, and I preach, whenever I preach that, people, that's when I'll often get a pushback. They'll say, wait, no, Babel was a bad thing. It was in <laughs> because... You know, Chad and I argue that no, that actually the giving of multiple languages was a blessing, was actually this effort to move away from an imperial mindset where you've got one language and uh, one particular uh, way of way of looking at the world to uh, to this uh, blessing of all these different languages, which which is a foreshadowing as Christians, we would argue, of what we then see in, during Pentecost, where the disciples gathered together are are given tongues as a fire and able to speak in multiple languages. That's this outpouring of the power of the spirit, which expresses itself in multiple cultures and multiple languages. And yet this, this still sense of, of connection and solidarity. So just as a side note, um, I mentioned before that there are any number of folks who start with their social and political preferences and back scripture into it. Was there ever a time, uh, I get the sense that there are uh, political movements um, and and folks who might maybe I don't know if you would identify necessarily this way, but may, maybe uh, you uh, align more often with uh, folks who think of themselves as progressives or liberals. Was there ever a time when you caught yourself coming in with a social or political preference yourself and then came up against scripture that you were grappling with that didn't reckon with that social or po political preference? Yeah, that's a great, uh, that is a great question. And uh, certainly I think there's a kind of fundamentalism that could occur on the left where it's sort of our way or the highway or a kind of a, a sense that if you don't believe sort of lock, stock and barrel, all these different kind of statements, then you're not pure, you're not a part of uh, this this identity that requires a kind of uniformity in in thought and perspective. I think we can all fall into that, which in in some ways is similar to not exactly the same as, but similar to the sort of Phariseeism, where you've got to you know there are all these very specific rules, and if you don't follow follow them, then you're you're considered either unclean or not part of the 
the fold. And I think that's a, certainly that's something that um, progressives can fall into versus uh, versus a vibrant dialogue where we say, hey, maybe the, this person who disagrees with me, uh, who is nevertheless uh, a human being created in the image of God as a thinking person too, may have insight that I could, I could learn from too. Yeah. And there are uh, complex, a uh, host of complex issues out there, abortion being one, you know, mm. you've got, uh, that's a, that's an issue that, you know, there's a, there's a particular progressive stance on it, but then you look at like, say the Catholic church that has a very conservative perspective on some issues and very progressive on others as profiled in the book, they've been a big part of uh, the uh, Christian uh, base community movement and uh, have have uh, supported uh, liberation theology and then there's this other uh, way in which on one hand they're against abortion but also against the death penalty and what i think is interesting about that is it presents oh wait it's not just this the kind of a, a contemporary progressive political stance it's it's recognizing wait there are there are different ways uh, you can look at at these issues from a from a standpoint of faith. Yeah, you know that's a good point, and it and it does sort of tie into what we're talking about. Uh, there are these uh, uh, orthodoxies, if you will, that if you don't sign on, all of a sudden you find yourself outside of the boundary. Uh, you know, yeah. if for example, I I happen to believe that life starts as conception. As long as you don't lock me out of the conversation, not not that that would be. You know, I, I'm I'm a dude, so it, you know I I should probably not be the primary uh, speaker in that conversation. But as long as I'm allowed to have that point of view, I could probably find common cause with folks who don't share that belief, but also yeah. share the belief that the life of the mother is important and the life of yeah. the child, you know, when it's born is important. And, you know, there's all these things that we can find common cause about whether we agree when life actually starts or, or not. Yeah, or who are deeply concerned about any sort of regulations that relate to women's bodies or that seek to be an oppressive force over women, which is a crucial part of that conversation, but that can also be part of this larger conversation of, yeah, what is life? When does life begin? And and have the ability to hear one another in, in those kind of conversations. Yeah. Well, I would like to ask you about a couple of the amazing individuals that you profile in the book, and you profile several of them. Um, and we mentioned John Fife, but um, and and correct me if I get don't get the name a pronunciation correct. Um, one of the folks is named Moises Moises Escalante. Is that right? Yes, Moises Escalante. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about his life and some of the incredible obstacles he had to overcome and where his journey took him. Yeah, I mean, he, what I, one of the stories with each of the people I profiled tried to find sort of a time when there was, I don't know, they had a visitation, a sense of call, a sense that God was speaking to them. And, and that, those sort of moments have always been interesting to me, moments in my own life where I felt like, oh, wow, I heard God speaking to me, sending me this direction. I thought I was going this way now. Uh, I really sense the voice of God leading me here, that those moments are always powerful to me. And for Moises, the, in getting to hear his story, certainly one of those times where the retreat, where... The workshop. 
Yeah, that where where he sort of sensed God really saying to him after reading that passage of arise, shine, your light has come, the sense that God wanted not a passive church, but an active church, uh, that God called us to engagement and the way that then led Moises, who, so Moises' journey is fascinating because he comes from, as an immigrant from El Salvador, so faced this dangerous journey of immigrating across the U.S.-Mexico border, which is a story so many people have faced. It's heroic in a lot of ways. It is one that is tremendously challenging. Enrique's journey is a recent book that's very powerful, profiling a boy's journey north across the U.S.-Mexico border and all the different challenges you face that that gives you some picture of of the various threats and robberies and all kinds of things you face in crossing. But Moises uh, was able to uh, cross the U.S.-Mexico border after, and then once he arrived in, in the U.S., then sort of tried to, had this journey of figuring out, okay, what does it mean to still care about El Salvador, uh, to return there and see some of the political developments that were taking place and wanting to, to support and uh, be a part of movements for for justice and peace and a, a vibrant future that were taking place in that country while being in the US. Uh, and then also as an immigrant himself, as one who, who knew the challenges of uh, not only uh, getting into the United States, but once you're here of trying to survive and find uh, a home and future in a place that um, where, where that's extremely challenging to then uh, act in solidarity with his work for, with uh, Interfaith Coalition for Immigrant Rights, uh, with Chirla and other organizations trying to, to build greater awareness of the plight of immigrants. I really respected that about Moises. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. Some folks, you would think that the amount of trials and obstacles that they have to overcome, it's all they can do to figure out how to eat by the end of the day, how to yeah. be sheltered. Um, but there were these profound epiphanies for him. The workshop that you had mentioned, you put the way you put it was he was for the first time invited to connect faith and politics, word and world. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you remember it, can you tell us a little bit more about that workshop? Yeah, I mean, it just, it happened, I think, uh, as many things do at a particular uh, time in his life when he was really um, in, a, in a kind of a rough spot. I think there's, there's something to the low points in our lives where we are open to God speaking to us. It's like pillars we were standing on before have fallen away. And that came at a time when he was separated from his wife and heading towards divorce. So his personal life was really coming apart. And he was asking, okay, what, what are uh, my foundations, you know, his, his effort so far in the solidarity movement with El Salvador felt like they weren't uh, reaching the success that he'd hoped to hope to have, and he felt really separated from that community. And so I think that can be a yeasty time where you're able to hear God's voice and call in a new way. And that's when uh, it was at a particular at this uh, workshop where uh, he was really impacted by that verse, Ephesians 5:14, sleeper awake, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you mm. that drove him to then to then say oh, wait you know that 
that the, the faith Christ calls us to, the life Christ calls us to, is not one of simply watching things happen. It is, it's activism. It's being a part of, it's being, to be quote Gandhi, being the change you wish to see in the world uh, as a member of the body of Christ. And what I, what I also love about Moises and all the people profiled in this book, you know, is, is that even in the midst of their, of their efforts for Moises, uh, trying to uh, protect the, the rights of immigrants, that he really stayed rooted in his identity as a child of God, as one who, uh, who was a Christ follower. Yeah. I also got to know him through, through Clue, uh, which is Clergy and Lady United for Economic Justice. So even once I came back to LA and was serving at Knox, he was still working at Clue. And so it was neat to connect with him on some uh, common actions and demonstrations for immigrant rights. Yeah, you just reminded me, uh, a shout out to my brother's younger daughter, Nina. We, we met uh, Ayla a couple weeks ago talking about anti-Semitism, but it was Nina in a conversation uh, just recently uh, that shared that same quote with me as, a, as, a, as an encouragement mm -hmm. that you shared, uh, be the change that you'd like to see in the world, yeah. loosely quoted. But uh, uh, my brother's got some inspiring young people that, that he and Rachel are raising, so. Yeah, but it, it's interesting about like young people, they get the activism thing today, which is wonderful. But it's what I often yearn for as a pastor for to also get the faith piece, to realize that, you know, in activism, you'll burn out. You'll have these failures where it just seems like, oh man, my own efforts aren't enough or the problem seems so big that a, a fabulous resource for it uh, is faith, is a sense of a God who deeply loves justice, is at work for justice, and invites us into, into that work. And if you study the civil rights movement, you know, uh, it, that's so integrated into, uh, into this broader effort against segregation and uh, laws that, uh, that enforced it. Yeah. Yeah, John Lewis, may he rest in peace, was what, 22 or 23 when he spoke, the, the March on Washington? Um, so another person you profiled in the book is Amalia Molina, and her story includes both heartbreaking and triumphant chapters. It, mm -hmm. it also exemplifies how dehumanizing many aspects of our systems can be. Can you tell us a little bit about Amalia's story? Sure. What, what I think is so powerful about Amalia's story, she really brings us into an immigrant detention facility. And I, I recently had an opportunity to go because Knox has been a part of a, uh, a woman's journey who was in an immigrant detention center, had a very strong case for asylum as she uh, fled uh, her country of Honduras because she'd been active in uh, organizing uh, farmers in, in her area and uh, for that had faced death threats. Mm. So had a very strong case for asylum and our congregation kind of went alongside her, but in, in going to in uh, basically help her make the move out of Adelanto detention facility and into housing that, that our congregation was providing, we got to go inside and see, and it's, you know, it's really a prison. It is a, uh, it's a place where you kind of go through several different very heavy doors and realize, oh, wow, you know, you can't leave. This is not like uh, a, an environment where you are, uh, you're able to, to just choose when and how you go. This is, th this room is your world. 
and you are uh, you're in this kind of prison. There was a courtroom that was in in one of the sections that we went to support her in one of the hearings. Uh, but Amalia, what's so powerful about what she does is even just shows the uh, the craziness of not knowing how long she'd be in there of of seeing the situation where she and Gil, when they were parents of young children, were and some teenage children were basically imprisoned for, you know, for for months and ultimately, you know, more than a year, where her her kids then had to kind of fend for themselves uh, in in the world, and all they could do was was sort of say, you know, don't do drugs and be good to each other. I mean, there wasn't a lot um, uh, a lot that they had power to do other than as as she describes kind of making these little uh, things to these, these crafts that she could then uh, sell, but um, to make a little money, but, but otherwise they were really um, prevented from, uh, from leaving and then facing the really difficult overcrowding conditions of that detention facility um, on charges that ultimately were dismissed because yeah. they, were, um, they didn't have merit. Yeah, they were frivolous. Yeah, that was another detail that you just mentioned that really caught my attention. Uh, making uh, crafts out of paper, uh, like a potato chip wrapper yeah, bags. Yeah. You know, just and while she was in prison, literally in yeah. prison, just so that she could send some money uh, to the neighbor that was watching her kids. Yeah, and I think um, I think her story too, certainly as a pastor, it was very powerful to have her share about how in the detention facility there was this communion service that uh, really impacted her, that reminded her of God's presence and love even in that environment, you know, from the priest serving uh, sacraments and her kind of realizing, oh wait, God is at work even here, and then of the priest challenge to her to, uh, to, to kind of live out her faith there and, and then be as compassionate as she could to others, form this Bible study with others and and try to be nurtured by by scripture and be a be a part of nurturing her own faith and and to try to be compassionate and work to find an alternative to violence between uh, different uh, others of who were detained as well. Yeah, yeah. So some great profiles, and I, I really commend the book. Um, it, it it does not only put a face on some of the stories of folks who've suffered. Uh, because of, you know, injustices, uh, but it also paints profiles of heroes within these struggles. Uh, one other person um, that we had mentioned already, but there was a part of his story that was actually a, a small victory, and it made me curious about what that victory might have looked like if it might have been turned upside down later in in in. Uh, Specifically, what I'm talking about is John Fife. You mentioned that due to some of the efforts he was involved with, the government agreed in 1989 to grant temporary protected status and work permits to refugees already living in the U.S. And as I read it, I couldn't help but fast forward to this last administration. And wouldn't those who came forward under prior administrations then be put at greater risk simply for being more easily found? I just I wondered about those implications when when administrations change over yeah it's a great question certainly at the time that was hailed as a phenomenal victory yeah but like so many uh victories on the social change front there are also forces working to undo uh particular gains and so it is a, certainly an ongoing struggle but that was a that was a major victory when it came 
Yeah. Yeah. And I certainly don't assign the same level of, of widespread avarice. Uh, you know, uh, George W. Bush, for example, touted c- compassionate conservatism. But um, when you get actors like Stephen Miller, who are so have such a um, loud voice in an administration and are dictating policy, you just don't know from one administration to the other. So it just it really made me wonder. Um, what did I forget to add? Were, were there any theological points or points of uh, these folks' stories that I forgot to ask you that you'd want to just recount? Well, I mean, as a Presbyterian, I'd love to lift up that it was a little Presbyterian church, Southside Press in Arizona, yeah. where the uh, 1980s sanctuary movement began. And all this language today about sanctuary cities, about sanctuary, it, it goes back. I mean, obviously, the history goes back much further than the 1980s movement. But from this little Presbyterian church and a coalition of other churches, this Quaker farmer or rancher named Jim Corbett, you know, this this movement happened where congregations around the country began uh, basically transporting undocumented refugees seeking escape from countries like El Salvador and Guatemala. And in so doing, learning about their journeys, learning about their humanity and being transformed, seeing you know, the, the image of God in them and seeing the story of uh, the Good Samaritan and the invitation of that in, in this encounter and relationship. So to think that started at a little local church is really exciting. And I, I want movement history. When we talk about sanctuary today, it's like, hey, wait, remember that there was a little church that started that. So I remember that now that you say it, I, I'm picturing someone getting the film rights to that story and this rancher, you know, (laughs) going to a young pastor and saying, hey, we're going to pick some people up at the border. You're coming with me, young man. (laughs) Right. Oh, yeah. It would totally make a great film, but uh, hasn't uh, hasn't been made yet that I've seen. Okay. All right. Some of my friends from the entertainment side, if you're listening, hey, here's some ideas. (laughs) And Jim Corbett himself, I mean, this guy who takes milk goats and goes out into the desert for weeks to just live on the milk that these goats produce when they eat vegetation. I mean, that's, that's hardcore. You know, that's <laughs> like talk about desert pilgrims or people wandering of the wilderness. That's wandering through the wilderness right there. That right there. Yeah. Our pal Tommy uh, has been wanting to take me on one of the trips that he and his dad used to go uh, hunting trips and, you know, uh, being out in the wild for, you know, days and days on end. And my first question is, is there a five-star hotel nearby? So, Because <laughs> <laughs> that's a question Jesus would ask, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I still have a ways to go. So, yeah. <laughs> hey, we're all in process, man. All in process. So did you have any questions for me? Oh, man. Uh, when's your next cedar? That's what I want to know. Oh, Oh, see, you're goyish. You don't know how to say (laughs) exactly. I don't. Yeah, it'll be uh, we we definitely look forward to that every year. So uh, I don't know when it falls uh, next year, but um, somewhere around March or April. But we'll we'll check with Ronnie and and we'll make sure to put it on the calendar. (laughs) Well, see how it goes. We've uh, we've certainly been extremely blessed to be a part of those in the past. But no, it's been great to be uh, part of this uh, podcast with you. I've loved the conversations with you about politics, religion, literature, uh, drama, the whole the whole gamut and how God's at work in all of that. 
So real quick, before we go, uh, how can folks find, there's one charity that, that uh, you're involved with, C-H-I-R-L-A, chirla.org, C-H-I-R-L-A.org. Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that and Knox, the uh, Knox Immigration Team. Sure. For, for Chirla, uh, Moises Escalante did some work with Chirla. Uh, I have had the privilege of being a part of a number of different actions that they have sponsored or worked with, uh, statements on behalf of, of immigrants that uh, they just, they've done neat work over the, over the ages in terms of education and solidarity. So I uh, really like, like Chirla. So that's an organization I would uh, certainly recommend. And then if uh, as a local church, Knox Presbyterian has a, um, an immigration ministry team that seeks to accompany and learn from and be transformed by immigrants in, uh, in their journey of life and, uh, and has accompanied in particular most recently an asylum seeker and sought to understand from her uh, more about the, the brokenness of our immigration system, what things need changing, and then also to remind us of, uh, of our shared humanity. Yeah, and uh, it's real easy to find knoxpasadena.org, knox with a K, K-N-O-X, pasadena.org. Uh, some great work is being done real close to home here. So Matt, I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, it's great hanging out with you. And, Likewise. Uh, look forward to seeing you in person here real soon. Great, thank you for having me, Corey. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts, give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.